Father, we are thankful we've come to the end of another good study, another time in your word. Uh, Father, I thank you for the ten years of faithfulness you've been uh, kind to give us here in this place where we could spend a Wednesday night teaching through your word and learning at your feet. Uh, Father, it's been a, a great blessing for me to have that opportunity. And I pray, Father, as well, that for those who've heard in all the years, uh, that this will be a, a high point in their walk with you as well, a study time that has nurtured them and opened their eyes to you in new ways and encouraged them to walk more closely with you. Because that's why we do this, Father. Uh, filling our head with knowledge is, is of no value to you if it does not uh, turn into something that leads us to be more like you. And I, I do pray, Father, that's our goal, even as we learn such uh, very detailed and uh, very uh, obscure or strange things we might feel about past history, about things yet to come. Nevertheless, Father, show, show us how we can take from what we learn and do something to serve you better with it. That's our goal. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So from our study last week, we found Daniel receiving a long, detailed prophecy concerning the final kings of Persia and, most notably, Greek Empire kings. Those prophecies covered multiple generations of time of leaders in both kingdoms. When you include the earlier prophecies that Daniel has received that we've already studied, you find a relatively complete overview of the first three kingdoms of the age of the Gentiles. For example, we know how the age starts with Nebuchadnezzar. We know how it moves, that is, through four Gentile empires. We know that each of these empires takes its turn at pressing God's people. We learn some of the names of the Babylonian kings. We've learned last week some of the Persian kings. And then, of course, we ended looking at very detailed explanation of two of the four kingdoms that came out of the Greek empire. Gabriel moved us into that in-depth look relatively quickly, talking in terms of the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom, the North being the Seleucid, the South being the Ptolemaic empires. And from verse 5 to verse 20 of chapter 11, you cover a span of several hundred years, during which time the North and the South just war almost continuously with one another. And the battlefield for their wars, for the most part, was Israel, which lay right between them. That conflict served to accomplish that trampling over of Jerusalem that is the purpose behind the age of the Gentiles. So we have all that history. That's what we did last week. And I know the history of the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kingdoms is interesting, maybe, to a degree. But its principal value to us is threefold. First, the incredible accuracy of those predictions gave us complete assurance that what Daniel wrote is something he received directly from God. Otherwise, he could never have been able to give us all that in advance we can take the rest of his prophecy with the same assurance, right? Because much of what he records, particularly what we study tonight, has yet to come to pass. So you have to look at his words concerning the future with all the same certainty that you look at his words concerning the past without any shred of doubt. That's the first lesson. Secondly, we see how the Lord controls these kings and these kingdoms as if they were just pieces on a chessboard so that he can accomplish a plan that he has set forth for Israel. Because remember, the Lord numbered these kingdoms. He said there would be four but more than that, he also explained what they would have to do and why they're doing it, which would indicate that they're all moving according to a plan. So that would tell us that the rise and the fall of these empires isn't merely happenstance. It's according to God's desires. And similarly, the end of this age comes on a day that God specifically determines by the return of his son. You cannot know the end without planning the means to the end. So both the degree of detail found in these prophecies and the course of every event fits into God's predetermined plan 
in order to execute some outcome in the lives of Israel. And you simply can't read a chapter like Daniel 11 without acknowledging that all history lies in God's control. He is not, as some would portray him, to be a dispassionate observer of human behavior. God is in control. He's leading the world to a place he desires it will go. There's not a single event in history that is not a part of this plan. So at verse 20, we had reached the point where the Seleucid Empire's king had been poisoned, if you remember, by the disloyal Jewish tax collector. And that means that as the king died, the man called Antiochus III, as he died, his son, Antiochus IV, rises to power. Antiochus IV now becomes a focal point in Gabriel's message to Daniel and the subject of Daniel's prophecy from verse 21 all the way to 35. And you may remember this man because we studied him once before in this book, back in chapter 8. In chapter 8 of Daniel, you remember Daniel saw a vision in that chapter somewhat similar to the vision he had seen in chapter 7, that being of an animal with horns. In chapter 8, what he saw was a goat. It had four horns. And then if you remember, those four horns were followed by a small horn, a fifth one that grew stronger than the rest. That small horn we learned back in chapter 8 was Antiochus IV. He was called a small horn because he serves as a type for another terrible leader of the future. That future leader will be the Antichrist, if you remember, who himself was identified by a representation of a small horn back in chapter 7 on the beast, on the fourth beast. Remember that? So we have now from past chapters these two rulers... One near term to Daniel, Antiochus IV. One far term from Daniel, the Antichrist. Both being symbolized at prior points in Daniel as little horns. And one of them, Antiochus, being a type for the later one. That is the Antichrist. And if you remember our teaching on types, a type is a, a picture, a forerunner, foreshadowing of something or someone coming in a lesser form to the Fulfillment that comes later in a greater form. Antiochus is a forerunner, a type of the Antichrist. So now we are here in chapter 11, and once again now we're reading a prophecy about Antiochus IV, but we're also going to see prophecy about the Antichrist. So these two come back to the foreground again in chapter 11, and in their respective roles, one as a type of the other. So Antiochus IV will say and do things that are similar to the things that the Antichrist will say and do, but the magnitude and the effect of the work of the Antichrist will be far greater than what was done with Antiochus. So let's look at what we learn about Antiochus first. Verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. The overflowing forces will be flooded away before him and shattered, and also the prince of the covenant. After an alliance is made with him, he will practice deception, and he will go up and gain power with a small force of people. In a time of tranquility, he will enter the richest parts of the realm, and he will accomplish what his fathers never did, nor his ancestors. He will distribute plunder, booty, and possessions among them, and he will devise his schemes against strongholds, but only for a time. He will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south with a large army. So the king of the south will mobilize an extremely large and mighty army for war, but he will not stand, for schemes will be devised against him. Those who eat his choice food will destroy him, and his army will overflow, but many will fall down slain. As for both kings, their hearts will be intent on evil, 
and they will speak lies to each other at the same table. But it will not succeed, for the end is still to come at the appointed time. Then he will return to his land with much plunder, but his heart will be set against the Holy Covenant, and he will take action, and then return to his own land. Very similar, as you know, to the style of what we saw in the first part of this chapter. The passage begins with, in his place, that's speaking of that murdered king I mentioned earlier. That king was Seleucus IV, Philip Hader, which is who we talked about last week. In his place, it says, comes a man who is truly an evil person. Gabriel says he will be despicable, which means someone who is despised. And he's despised specifically by the Jewish people because of his cruelty for them. In fact, it's likely that this man shares another key quality with the coming Antichrist. That is, that he is almost certainly indwelled by a demon and perhaps by Satan himself, for reasons I'll explain later. Antiochus IV was not the rightful heir of Seleucus IV Philippator. He was able to seize control of the throne because Seleucus IV's oldest son was being held captive in Rome by Romans as a way of keeping leverage over the Seleucid Empire. So Antiochus IV convinced the leaders of Syria to allow him to rule in place of that captive son, and he quickly consolidated power. In verse 21, we see that it says he rose to power illegitimately. He was a ruthless man, and we learn back in chapter 8 that he declared that he was God in the form of man, God incarnate. And that's why he took the name Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the manifestation of God. But he was prone to unpredictable and strange behavior. Again, maybe an indication of his demon possession. And that led his subjects to calling him Antiochus Epimenes, which is a play on words and it means madmen. That was, again, further evidence he might be demon-possessed. The statements in verses 22 and 23, they are an overview of what comes after it. They're not a separate series of events. So verses 22 and 23 are an overview of the passage that follows. It says you're going to learn about a king being able to push aside an overflowing force, deposing a prince of a covenant. He will gain power over his adversaries with a minimum of forces because he relies on deception. Okay? And then, beginning in verse 24, you begin to see the details of it. Starting with Antiochus collecting riches from among the vassals of his kingdom. Now, he doesn't do this to enrich himself. Instead, he uses what he can plunder from the areas within his control to buy allegiances elsewhere in neighboring uh, areas in preparation for war against the Ptolemaic kingdom. And in this way, he will achieve a victory that his fathers never achieved, namely invading the heart of the Ptolemaic kingdom. That's the reference there to something that was never done before. And in 170 BC, he was ready. So his campaign against Egypt, the Ptolemaic Empire, began in 170 BC. He marched a large army, and you see in the text there it describes a very large army. He marches it southward into the Nile Delta, and he gets all the way to the Nile Delta without detection. By the point that Ptolemy VI recognizes that this large army is on his doorstep, he responds with an even larger army, as the text says, to oppose Antiochus IV. And as you read in verse 23, Antiochus was able to defeat Ptolemy VI's forces with a smaller force, and he managed to capture the Egyptian city of Memphis. Had a little barbecue, listened to some blues, and then took Ptolemy captive. And verse 25 reports that Antiochus succeeded in this plan, in part, through deception. And the deception came in two ways, as described in verses 26 and 27. 
In 26, we learn that two of the king's Ptolemy VI's own counselors, who share his table with him, in other words, they deceived him. They wanted to undermine this young king and take the throne away from him. And so they convinced Ptolemy VI to make bad military decisions in the course of that battle, which intentionally then led to Ptolemy losing to a smaller force. That's the first way in which deception worked against the, the Ptolemaic Empire. The second deception came when Ptolemy VI and Antiochus IV sat down to negotiate the peace, which is what's described in verse 27, sitting at the same table. Antiochus had Memphis, but he could not capture the key Egyptian city of Alexandria. So Antiochus told Ptolemy that if he surrendered Alexandria to him, then Antiochus would let Ptolemy continue to rule. Meanwhile, Ptolemy agreed to let Antiochus have the city and vowed loyalty to Antiochus. But they were both lying. Antiochus IV kept Ptolemy prisoner under guard while he attacked the city. And despite Ptolemy's assurances, the city of Alexandria did not surrender. When Antiochus tried to take the city, they fought back and they named Ptolemy VI's younger brother as their king instead because they no longer wanted a king that was under Antiochus' control. Antiochus eventually left for home without capturing Alexandria and his battles for Egypt awaited for another day. All of that is the backdrop to what we read all the way through verse 27. Finally, in verse 28... We're told Antiochus IV returns to Syria, it says, with much plunder taken from Memphis. Along the way, he has to pass through Israel again. And while he's in town, an enterprising Jew by the name of Jason decides it's an opportunity for him to feed his own ambition. So he approaches Antiochus with the desire to be made high priest of Israel. And he bribes Antiochus IV to install him in place of the real high priest, a man named Onias III. Well, someone else watches all this happen, seeing Jason's success. So this third man, Menelaus, also decided to try the same thing. So he bribed Antiochus IV as well to be made high priest himself. And always the one for personal gain, Antiochus agreed to install Menelaus over Jason. Later, Onias III protested against all of these moves, and Jews within the culture began to align themselves in support of one of these men or the other. Well, eventually, Antiochus IV, who's now, by this point, back in Syria, he gets tired of all the political maneuvering. So, he has Onias III killed, along with any who schemed with the various men. He doesn't kill Jason or Menelaus, for some reason. But he does decide to go on a vendetta against the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. He enters the city in 168 BC, and he kills 80,000 Jews, and he desecrates the temple. So, before we move into the rest of his story... You can already see some parallels coming out between him and the eventual work of the Antichrist. For example, we learned in the study of chapters 8 and 9 of Daniel that the Antichrist arises to power over a period of time. He initially comes to power amidst ten other world rulers, right? You have ten horns initially before the eleventh comes up. During his early years, he gains power through intrigue, through military victories, through deception, Eventually, it leads three of those ten kings to conspire against him because they see what's coming. Eventually, they succeed. He dies as a result of their treachery. But then, as you know, he comes back to life again with the power of Satan and now has even greater power to deceive the world. And after gaining that power at the midpoint of tribulation, he then turns his attention to persecuting the Jewish people, especially in Jerusalem. So we're seeing a similar pattern. Not that every detail is the same, but that broad arc is foreshadowed in the events of Antiochus' life. He acts in similar ways, though on a smaller scale, in keeping with being a forerunner, being a type. 
But those similarities with the Antichrist only grow stronger and stronger as we go through the text. So we can go a little further now. Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will return and come into the south. But this last time, it will not turn out the way it did before. For ships of Kittim will come against him. Therefore, he will be disheartened and will return and become enraged at the Holy Covenant and take action. So he will come back and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces with him will, from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Back in verse 27, Gabriel told Daniel that this king would not prevail against his enemy in the south until the appointed time. And now in verse 29, it looks as though that time has come, or so Antiochus thinks. In the same year that Antiochus rampaged Jerusalem, he also decided to just continue on southward back into Egypt to pick up the fight again with the Ptolemaic Empire. Only this time, as you see in the text we just read, things don't go like they did the first time. He encounters the Roman consul Pompilius Leonus. And that Roman consul had sailed from Cyprus to secure the territory for Rome. And in verse 30, you're told there that ships from Kittim bring this army to Egypt. Well, Cyprus is the modern name of Kittim. So faced with a superior army opposing him, and no one could have opposed the Roman army, Antiochus IV had no choice but to return home frustrated. He's prevented from entering Egypt, he's discouraged, and his return trip, of course, takes him right back through Israel once more. And as verse 30 explains, he's enraged by his loss to Rome, and so he decides to take his, his anger out on the Jewish people. This reference to the Holy Covenant, that's always a reference to the Old Covenant by which the Jews received the law and the temple service. So opposing that covenant means opposing the law in its practice, opposing the temple service. So Antiochus IV opposed the Jews operating according to their law, and it says he also showed favor for any Jew who would likewise oppose the practice of the law along with him. Which makes sense, right? He would appreciate anybody who wanted to do what he wanted. So in order to stop the Jews from practicing their law, the king used deception to gain entrance into Jerusalem. It's a walled city, not an easy city to get into. Rather than fight his way in, he deceived them. And with deception, they opened the door and he took 22,000 men into the city. Once he got inside the city walls, he attacked the Jews on a Sabbath day, which was intentional because he knew they'd be reluctant to pick up arms to fight back in violation of the Sabbath. And in the uh, process, a general named Polonius killed many in the city, took many Jews captive as slaves, plundered the temple of its gold, set the city on fire. And he set his mind, Antiochus set his mind, on exterminating the Jewish people altogether, ending Jewish religious practice forever. So, in addition to the destruction done by his general, Antiochus went into the city and banned the Mosaic Law including all temple service and the feasts. He burned all the copies of the law that he could get his hands on. He set up a statue of Zeus, his god, inside the temple, along with an altar for Zeus, on which he then made burnt offerings to Zeus. And for good measure, he sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar and demanded that Jews continue to sacrifice a swine there every year on his birthday. So pig blood being in the temple prevented the Jews from using their temple the rest of the year for anything that they would normally use it for. It was ritually unclean, and they couldn't cleanse it because they couldn't practice the law. And as we learned back in chapter 8, this event was so ignominious that it was given a special name. It was called the Abomination of Desolation, and it's mentioned here again in verse 31. 
The abomination refers to not just the pig, but it refers to all the steps that Antiochus IV took to desecrate the temple in December of 168 BC. Here you find very specific parallels to the Antichrist of tribulation. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this warning about the time of tribulation. In 24:15, he says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now nor ever will. So Christ spoke those words after Antiochus IV had come and gone. After his abomination. But Jesus is clearly speaking of a future time. So clearly he's talking about a different event. And yet he specifically says that this event is the one Daniel the prophet spoke about. Well, he's speaking of two places in Daniel. Daniel 9 is where we hear that there will be an abomination done by the Antichrist. That's the one that Jesus is most specifically referring to. But you're also seeing confirmation in Jesus' words that the account of Antiochus and his abomination is a picture or a type of this greater one that is yet to come. In fact, Jesus even adds those words after he says, spoken of by Daniel, and then he says, let the reader understand. That's to emphasize that you need a deeper understanding in order to grasp the meaning of what Jesus is saying. And that deeper understanding is knowing that Antiochus IV pictures the Antichrist, and therefore the actions of Antiochus IV are a preview of coming attractions for what the Antichrist himself will do in a greater way in days to come. So based on what we learned already in Daniel and what we're learning here in chapter 11, we see now more of that picture coming together. In Daniel 9, we learned that the Antichrist makes a covenant with the people of Israel, which allows them to restart their sacrifices in the temple, remember? That's where the clock starts for that last seven years of Daniel's 77s. But we also learned in Daniel 9 that at the midpoint of that seven-year period, the Antichrist puts a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And based on what Daniel says and what Jesus says, then that same man will set up an abomination of desolation in the temple. And Revelation 13 is where we went to get a hint of what that future abomination will be. We know what Antiochus set up, a statue to Zeus. What will the Antichrist set up? Revelation 13:14 says, And he deceives, notice the common quality of deception in both men, both Antiochus and now the Antichrist. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and had come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. This he in verses 14 15 of chapter 13 of Revelation, this he is a man that we call the false prophet. The Antichrist is supported by this man. This man, the false prophet, will deceive the world into worshiping the Antichrist as if the Antichrist were God. And to facilitate that outcome, the false prophet, we're told, sets up an image of the Antichrist, it seems, in the temple. That image will have supernatural power to speak which only inspires the world's awe and devotion all the more. And of course, what source would we assume for the power of the image? 
Well, the very same one that gave his power to the beast to resurrect him, Satan himself. So clearly Antiochus IV is picturing these greater events. He entered Jerusalem. He put an end to the law. He put an end to the sacrifice, we're told, to the temple service. He outlawed it all. And then he put his statue of Zeus in the temple in place of true worship of Yahweh. Then we know from Revelation that the Antichrist will do something very similar. Only his image will be that much more powerful, that much more engaging, and that much more dangerous. And the parallels continue, by the way, verse 32 of Daniel 11. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. These are the last pieces of Antiochus' life. We hear that he convinces many faithless Jews to participate in his Zeus worship, and he does it in a very interesting way. Antiochus IV was expert at pitting various Jewish factions against one another in order to gain what he wanted. He detected very early, I guess, that within Jewish culture there was a tendency for a lot of bickering and backfighting, and he put it to his advantage. He first gained the defection of the progressive, liberal elements within Judaism who were already apostate, and so they were relatively quick to obey his demands to worship Zeus. They don't really care that much. Once he had their loyalty, then Antiochus IV turned to the conservative elements in Jewish society who were still orthodox and in keeping with their law. And he offered to help them root out the progressives within Israel's culture if the conservatives would pledge their loyalty to him. The conservative Jews were so threatened by the progressives that they agreed to Antiochus IV's terms. They adopted the view that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So in the end, Antiochus was able to take both groups into idolatry through that manipulation. Because of his atrocities, though, a conservative Jewish revolt eventually broke out, as verse 32 is speaking about. A priest named Mattathias and his sons rose up in Ephraim, and they led an army of conservative Jews against Antiochus IV, and eventually that movement pushed the Seleucids completely out of Israel altogether. And in the battle, Antiochus IV's general, Apollonius, was killed as a result. We call this the Maccabean Revolt. And interestingly, the Maccabean Revolt did not please every Jew initially. The apostate progressives that we just talked about, they feared the rise of conservatives, and this was a conservative movement within Judaism. So they didn't favor the revolt, and they didn't fight with Antiochus uh, with them against Antiochus. Meanwhile, Antiochus IV retaliated, of course, at least initially. He killed many of those who had opposed him by sword and by burning. And though he inflicted great losses upon Israel, he was not able to retake the land. And within a few years, he died insane in Persia, probably the result of a lifetime of indwelling by demons. Um, insanity is not uncommonly the outcome. Eventually, the success of the Maccabeans won over all of Israel. The progressives eventually united with the conservatives. And after their victory, the Maccabeans founded a new conservative Jewish kingdom. In fact, the Jewish culture swung hard to the right as a result of their victory. Sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? 
The Mosaic law returned as a result in the life of Judaism with far greater zealousness. And that's what's described in verse 33. Those who knew God's law began to spread its practice, to teach it in a culture where it had almost been forgotten in some places. That increased the understanding among a largely apostate Jewish population for their law and for the practice of temple service. Some of those who led the revival in the time of the Maccabeans, their descendants were the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Others became the Essenes who set up the Dead Sea Scrolls. These very zealous factions are the outgrowth of what started during the Maccabean Revolt. Many of those who were opposed to the revolt in the beginning and then later joined in this movement with the Maccabeans, their hypocrisy is mentioned in verse 34. In those battles, a lot of Jews died But their death served a very godly purpose. Notice verse 35. We're told that those who have insight would fall. These are the godly ones who knew the Lord, loved his law, were fighting to free the country from Antiochus IV. And you might ask, well, why did the Lord allow them to fall? Why would he take his his own people and put them in, in this situation, let their lives be taken? Gabriel tells us it's because it had to happen in order to refine, purge, and purify Israel until the end. The rest there refers to the rest of Israel. So the death of some of the faithful was intended to push out apostasy in the culture of Israel. It caused the apostate within Israel to come into line with conservative views of their law. And that purge was so powerful that it kept Israel orthodox until the end times. Over the millennia, the people of Israel have largely remained true to their law in every generation since that time. Now, there's always been apostate Jews, and there certainly are today, but since the time of the Maccabean Revolt, Jewishness has always been associated with observing the law. In fact, it's so much so that we can't imagine it any other way. And yet, before the Maccabean Revolt, and certainly looking back through the prophets, you see episodes like this at times past, where the whole of Israel had forgotten all about the law. It's discovered under the temple, and someone's like, what is this? It was a true revolution for them to go back to orthodoxy. And Gabriel says this intense time of of persecution and the death that it resulted in was necessary to get Israel at least somewhat back into a conservative mindset in preparation for the Messiah's coming. And since that time, Judaism has never reverted to widespread apostasy as it has in past ages. Only until very recently would we say that that's happening again. And here again, we see a type for the last days of the Antichrist. In the last days, the Jewish people return to a state similar to the time right before Antiochus IV rolls into town. That is to say, the Jewish people become largely apostate in the very last days, and we're seeing that even now. Apart from a small Orthodox minority, most Jews today do not practice the law in any meaningful way or know much of it at all. And of course, the temple service is not even possible, for we don't have a temple. Interestingly, The last seven years of this age, the tribulation, begins with a covenant to open a temple. But because of the rise of the Antichrist, great war will break out. And in the midst of that conflict, there will be martyrs. And as we read in Revelation, speaking of how Satan attacks God's people in the time of tribulation, we learn this in Revelation 12, 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's speaking here of how the enemy, Satan, is enraged at the woman Israel and goes after her children, the Jewish people, who keep the commandments of God. And the result of that turmoil is seen at an earlier point in Revelation, in chapter 6. Revelation 6, 9. 
When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So, just as we saw in the time of Antiochus IV, this later time of the tribulation involves martyrdom for God's own people as part of a greater goal of purifying and preparing people for Christ's second coming. As the prophet Zechariah explains, speaking of Israel, and this same time, he says in Zechariah 13.8, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. This is speaking of Israel. Two parts will be cut off and perish. But the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. The tribulation leads some of Israel to be cut off, but the rest to be refined, and to call upon the name of the Lord, a clear parallel to what we see going on with Antiochus. Furthermore, in preparation for this time of purging, the Lord will promote the rise of conservative Orthodox Judaism immediately before these times. Another direct parallel. In the last days, before the Antichrist comes to power, God will supernaturally provoke Jewish desire to follow the law again according to the promises given in Malachi. In Malachi 4.4. Remember, look how he starts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So to bring Israel back to an observance of the law, the prophet says that the Lord will facilitate an appearance of Elijah the prophet, the actual man Elijah who once lived and walked the earth in times past. He will, according to Malachi, restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. Now this is often misunderstood because the language seems to be speaking of family relationships and we trivialize this maneuver of God to something simply of rebuilding families. Uh, That has nothing to do with what he's talking about. Restoring the hearts of the fathers to their children means giving the modern descendants of Israel, the children, the same heart for God's word that their fathers once had restoring the father's hearts to the children and conversely he said he would also restore the hearts of the children to where their father's hearts once were and this is a description of Israel returning from apostasy immediately before the great and terrible day of the Lord which is a reference to tribulation the great and terrible day of the Lord is a way of referencing the seven year tribulation so before tribulation begins God needs Israel to even care about their law So that when a temple is able to be set up, they have any interest in it. I've often said to people, if you were to say to a Jew living in New York City today, hey, there's going to be a new temple, want to go back and slit the throats of bulls? And I don't think you'd find many Jews very interested in participating in that process. They're above that now. We've outgrown the need for that. We're far more sophisticated than that today. If God is going to return Israel to a time of orthodoxy in preparation for their Messiah... He has to stimulate that interest. Elijah will be the one to do that for God in that day. Just as, in a type of Elijah, John the Baptist did that for Israel before Christ's first coming. So that they would be interested in a Messiah in their day. 
whereas before they weren't. Not much. This is the end time Gabriel mentions in verse 35. The nation of Israel will be brought back into a degree of orthodoxy, just as they once were by the actions of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV's rampage created in Israel a desire of nationalism and reuniting under their law and of conservative thinking, and the Antichrist will do the same thing in the time to come. It required the intense evil of such a man to unite an otherwise fractured group of people under their law. So you see a good work of God done through an evil man, though it resulted in loss of life even among the godly, it ultimately rescued Israel from apostasy. And then in the last days, that new revival will have to happen again. Another terribly despicable man is required. And that's why he lets the Antichrist come to power. Now in chapter 11, we transition. As many Bible students probably already know in here, or at least some of you do, I'm sure. At verse 36, there's a transition taking place in the narrative. It's subtle. Uh, You may not see it if you were just reading through the chapter casually. But we have stopped talking about Antiochus IV, and we are now talking about the one that he pictures, beginning in verse 36. And I'll explain the change as we look at it here. Let's start reading. Verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasure. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god, and he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Now this passage sounds at first as if we're still talking about Antiochus because a lot of these things we've already covered, right? Everything from plundering and using that to parcel out to others and and so on and so forth. But in the narrative you're going to see, though it's subtle, that we've moved beyond Antiochus' life. And the first clue is simply in the way you see verse 35 transitioning into verse 36. You notice at the end of verse 35 it starts speaking about future appointed times. And then in verse 36, you see it mentioning, then the king. That's a clue that tells us you've jumped ahead to some other king in the appointed end times. More importantly, or more clearly, the context of this passage makes it abundantly clear that we're talking about someone else, because the events of the passage I just read have absolutely no parallel in history. They do not comport with what Antiochus did. For example, he had a distinct interest in women. There are many other things that do not match in his life, nor do they match to anyone we can say in history at any time. That's our best clue to know we're talking about something still in the future. We're looking here at the final seven of Daniel's 77s. This future king will do as he pleases in a future day, meaning no one will challenge his power. In particular, he says he will magnify himself above even gods everywhere. Now, we know Antiochus called himself a manifestation of God, you know, Epiphanes. But at the same time, we know he also acknowledged other gods. In particular, we noted earlier, he worshipped Zeus. But this guy won't do that. And we also know Antiochus couldn't do everything he pleased, and particularly where Rome was concerned. So this king has got to be a different guy. This king will declare there is no other god above himself, and he will do whatever he wants, and in the process speak monstrous things against the true god. 
As he does these things, we're told he will prosper until the indignation, the indignation is finished. The indignation refers to the state of suffering for Israel during the time of the age of the Gentiles. The whole age of Gentiles is in indignation against Israel, and intentionally so. God made it such. When does that period end? At the second coming of Christ. This king, whoever he is, will prosper until the indignation is finished. Well, that as well puts us at the very end of this period of history. It forces us to look forward to the last seven of Daniel's 77s. Then in verse 37, we're told that this man will have no regard for any god worshipped by his fathers, which means his predecessors. So another way to say it is, he will not have a religious past. He will not be an avowed follower of any particular religion. He will seem agnostic or atheistic. He'll have nothing about his background to pin him into some religious circle. Instead, he himself will assume the role of icon. This is the moment at the middle of tribulation that we've discussed earlier in our study when the Antichrist is resurrected by the power of Satan and from that point forward he declares himself to be a God and that the world is to now worship him alone. This is what we see referenced here. And then that curious comment, he'll have no desire for women. This, this line has intrigued many Bible students and it's led to some unhelpful speculation. It simply means that this man will have no interest in normal human sexual relationships. And the reason has nothing to do with his sexual preference, but rather it's essential to his claim to being Messiah. God has no need for human sexual relationships. Just as Jesus had no interest in women in that sense, because the church is his bride, neither will the Antichrist, because the Antichrist is attempting to counterfeit himself in the position of Messiah. So he will follow in the Messiah's footsteps in that sense. He foregoes romantic interests so as to project himself to be the Messiah. Then in verse 38, Gabriel says this man will honor a god of fortresses, a god his fathers didn't know. Now, I believe this god is the same one called a foreign god in verse 39. The god he honors is a foreign god. And yet it says at the same time that he is a god himself above all other gods. It almost seems contradictory. And yet, it does seem to match something in the Trinity. Jesus Christ is the name above all names, and he is God. And yet, he honors God the Father. So here again, you see the Antichrist continuing to counterfeit the Trinity. Because he is now counterfeiting himself as Christ, and the God that gave him his power, a God his fathers did not know, that being Satan, a God in quotes, is the one who is being honored. In fact, Revelation says specifically that that's the effect of the Antichrist. After he is resurrected at mid-trib by the power of Satan, we read this in Revelation 13, verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. And listen, they worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? Now, in case you didn't already know, the beast here is the Antichrist. The dragon is the serpent of old, Satan. So you notice it says Satan gave his power to the Antichrist. And because he gave his power to the Antichrist and allowed him to be resurrected, they worshipped Satan. And it says they also worshipped the beast. And there you see the counterfeit Trinity coming to pass. The only thing missing, of course, is the counterfeit Holy Spirit and the false prophet serves that purpose.
After the Antichrist is resurrected, the Antichrist causes the world to worship himself and the dragon. And in verse 39, we're told this king, again, the Antichrist, will show honor to those who honor him by parceling out land for a price, which is a way of saying he controls commerce and the ability to produce or obtain food. And Revelation confirms that this is a unique quality of the Antichrist in the last days. Revelation 13.15 says, It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small and the great, and the rich and the poor, and the free men and the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Interestingly, the he in that passage is not the Antichrist. It's the false prophet all the way through. We talk about the mark of the Antichrist coming from the Antichrist. It actually comes from the false prophet. He is the one who causes the world to take a mark in order to buy and sell. Here again, who marks the believer? The Spirit of God. So the false prophet plays the role of the false Holy Spirit, putting a false mark on people, which then you have to have it in order to buy or sell, and if you don't take it, you're killed. Again, the the Trinity in some false counterfeit way. But notice the Antichrist, through that mark, is able to control commerce. Only those who take the mark can buy or sell. That's parceling out land for a price. The price here is not money per se, it's your life. Those who fail to take the mark, we're told in Revelation 20, are beheaded. Finally, in chapter 11 again, Gabriel describes how this man comes to his end. Verse 40. At the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen and with many ships, and he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with a great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end, and no one will help him. Similar to Antiochus IV, the Antichrist fights his neighbors. I find it very fascinating that God has set up the type of the Antichrist in the form of Antiochus IV to such precision that even the battles he fights and the people he's fighting are much the same as they are for the Antichrist in the last day. You notice it says here the king is fighting both south and north, but that itself tells you this guy can't be Antiochus himself because Antiochus was one of those places. He was the north. And yet this king is fighting both the north and the south. The most likely explanation for who these powers are, they may be the three horns from Daniel chapter 7, the three kingdoms that came against the Antichrist to try to kill him, Maybe after he's resurrected and he goes out now in wrath, he decides to destroy their respective kingdoms. That might be one explanation. According to Gabriel, the Antichrist will succeed in this endeavor. He'll move through these nations, subduing them all, which is also what we learned in Daniel 7. And like Antiochus IV, the Antichrist will make a special point of invading Israel. You notice here it's called the beautiful land again. So just as Antiochus IV tried to destroy the Jewish people in the midst of fighting other battles... Similarly, the Antichrist is going to put a special emphasis on eliminating Israel from their land, even as he's defending himself against others who would try to take his power away. Why is that? 
Why has the enemy's focus always been on destroying Israel? I'm speaking now about Satan specifically. Well, it's because of Israel's role in Christ's second coming. As Daniel's prophecies have already taught us, the Messiah returns to put an end to Gentile rule, the age of the Gentiles, and to set up a Jewish kingdom, Jewish in the sense that Jesus is a Jew, and it's his kingdom. But what if there are no Jews left? What if the enemy succeeds in wiping out the Jewish nation? Well, then Jesus' second coming would be thwarted, for there'd be no kingdom to set up. There'd be no Jewish nation to return for. And so, Satan thinks, his success is dependent on eliminating the Jewish people. That explains their persecution from times past until today. He's always made it his goal to remove Jewish people from the earth. He has been working through various means over the millennia to try to accomplish that outcome. And once he indwells the Antichrist, he will turn his full attention to that goal in his last days. Revelation says that once Satan is cast out from heaven and barred from reentry, he knows his time is short. And that puts him under a greater urgency all the more to destroy Israel. And in verses 41 and 42, we learn that his conquests will fell many surrounding nations. But notice the ones that are being mentioned here. North-South, of course, are just locations in, in the compass. But we see some names being mentioned there. Ethiopian, Egypt, etc. All of these nations are relatively near neighbors to present-day Israel. Why don't we hear of a world ruler like the Antichrist destroying other nations from around the world? If you're a world ruler, you should be able to go to other parts of the world. Like the quote from John Cleese of Monty Python. In answer to the question, how are British better than Americans? He says, well, when we hold world championships, we actually invite other countries. (laughs) Similarly, If the Antichrist is truly a world leader, why do we only see these nearby countries being mentioned? Because by this point in tribulation, the second half of tribulation, very little of the earth remains inhabited. Very little of it remains worth fighting for. The judgments of tribulation by God have destroyed most of the earth, leaving only what we today call the Middle East still inhabitable. And that small space is entirely the place within which the Antichrist operates. Here again, that's purposeful on God's part. He is crystallizing the attention of the world down to the essential dichotomy that's always existed. Babylon, Israel, the Antichrist, and God's people in Israel. And so what's always been metaphorically a dichotomy, an east-west fight, becomes literally so in the very last days because the rest of the world doesn't matter anymore. It's not around. And here you see him described as defeating his enemies in all directions around him in this small space of what remains, except for a few key areas. Those areas mentioned in the text that he does not touch, Edom, uh, etc., are all areas east of Israel, and they're spared by God for the purpose of allowing a space for the preservation of a remnant of Israel. Edom, Moab, and Ammon all refer to land east of the Jordan, present-day Jordan. And in that area, the Lord will preserve a portion of the Jews who are on earth in that day, believing Jews, the remnant. And in Revelation 12, we hear a little bit of how God does this. Again, using symbols, calling Israel a woman, calling the Antichrist, who's indwelled by Satan now at this point, a dragon. Revelation 12 describes God's defense of his people in these territories. Revelation 12:13. When the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth... He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, Jesus. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So using metaphors and symbols, Israel is flown, carried by God, as it were, 
allowed to escape into safety for three and a half years, the second half of tribulation, to a place called the wilderness. In Micah, Old Testament prophet Micah, we hear that this place of holding is like a sheep's pen. And the word for sheep's pen in Hebrew is batzra. And so Micah 2.12 says, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant. Notice remnant. Remnant always refers to the believing of Israel that are uh, otherwise surrounded by an apostate nation. So the believing element of Israel. He says, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like, like sheep in the fold. The word fold in English is actually the word batzra in Hebrew. So I will put them together like sheep in batzra. Like a flock in the midst of its pasture, they will be noisy with men. That present day place is in Jordan, in the very places that we are told are being protected. And it goes today by a, a Greek name, Petra. But its ancient name is Batra. And if you've ever been there or seen it in Indiana Jones movies, it's a series of caverns that are very tightly packed. And God, in his supernatural ability, will put Israel in there, pack them in and protect them from the Antichrist, from the dragon. So that in the last three and a half years, when he would otherwise love to be killing every Jew he can get his hands on, he can't get his hands on these. These will be escaping, as God has always done throughout history. He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment and to protect the righteous. So his people will not be subject to the penalties of the last three and a half years. They'll be protected in that area. But there are other Jews who are not yet believing, who will endure will be purged and refined, and they are, for the most part, in Jerusalem during the same time. Finally, like Antiochus IV, the Antichrist says will plunder uh, many places, and yet in the end it says he will be defeated in battle. In verse 44, we're told the Antichrist will be drawn into battle with rumors from the east and the north, whatever those rumors are, maybe of some pending attack or threat. It draws him and his allies into a battle that ultimately focuses on the city of Jerusalem and the last fortress of Jews that are left on the earth apart from the remnant. Unlike those that are held in safety in Basra, though, the Jews who are left in the city of Jerusalem are very vulnerable and they are suffering. It is these remaining Jews who must at some point call out on the name of the Lord in order to bring about his return. But to prevent that outcome, the Antichrist, indwelled by Satan, camps his army west of Jerusalem, as Daniel there says, Daniel 11 says, between the holy mountain and the great sea. So if you can imagine a map of Jerusalem in your mind, to the west of Jerusalem, your left, is where you go to find the great sea. So somewhere between the great sea and Jerusalem, he's camped with his forces. That would put him on the west side of the city. There it says he will then attack the city from the west, and we're told he meets his end there. He does so as a result of Christ's second coming. Christ, we know, comes into the city through the east gate, from the opposite side of the city. He leads the population of the city out through that rear entrance, giving them safe passage out, we're told in Zechariah 12. And then, as a result, he goes forward into the battle alone and fights the Antichrist by himself, defeating the Antichrist and his forces. Now, the study we have here tonight doesn't permit me to you know, walk you through the whole battle in any greater detail than that. You can find that in the Revelation study, along with battle maps and little tanks and all kinds of stuff. But for now, it's enough to know that Gabriel foretells the end of the Antichrist in this battle over Jerusalem. And as we learned, the Antichrist's death is the last act in the age of the Gentiles. That's chapter 11. So what we've learned in a nutshell is that Antiochus comes at the end of the prophecy concerning the Greek Empire as it leads into the Roman. And 
this last man of the Greek Empire is unique because he pictures in who he is and what he does another coming despicable actor who will usher in the end of the fourth kingdom as well, of the kingdom we're currently waiting to see come to an end. But Gabriel's prophecy continues into one more chapter. 